Luke chapter 6, we are working our way through the gospel of Luke verse by verse, and this has been a very powerful sermon series. I remember years ago, my wife and I were brand new, in, uh, brand new to marriage, so we've been married for 13 years, and uh, we were living in a little basement apartment up on the north side of Chicago, and uh, we lived in an area called North Center, and uh, around North Center where we were at, there were all these streets that had these incredible homes on them, just these beautiful Chicago homes. And, and oftentimes at night, my wife and I would walk down to Margie's Ice Cream, which is the best ice cream in the city. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and we'd go over to Margie's Ice Cream, and we would uh, then go on a walk through these blocks. And you know, we're a brand new married couple, and we look at the homes, and we just, you know, you kind of have that, you know, newly married looking at these beautiful streets, saying, wouldn't that be nice to be able to one day live in a, in a wonderful home like this, on a block like this kind of thing? And uh, one day we're walking down one of these streets, and we see this beautiful house. And, and you know, we've kind of always loosely talked about how nice it would be to own a, a blue house with a red door. We don't want anything too spectacular. Just a blue house with a red door with a, with a little grass would be wonderful. Um, and one day we see it. It's right there on this gorgeous block. Not too big. It's right there. And so I look it up, and sure enough... It's not outrageously out of our price range. Now, this is impossible. Just, I mean, it was just impossible. There's no way that house could possibly be within our price range. And so we go buy it, and, you know, we don't think much of it, but a week later, we're on a walk, we go down the street again, and there it is again. And we keep walking by this house, and we're just amazed at it. I look it up. This price is good. How could this be? And I, I look down the side. Everything looks good over here. And then I look down the side over here, and I see that the back half of the house is peeling away from the rest of the house like this. <laughs> See, the problem with the house is it had a bad foundation. Now, we even joked for a number of months after that, you know, <laughs> I could become a handyman. I could, I could figure this out. We could buy this house. But here's the, here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. When you buy a house with a bad foundation, you can try to fix it up all you want. You, you know, every, the crack, but the problem is every time you fix one crack, because the foundation's wrong, you're going to keep sinking money into fixing more and more cracks because the foundation's off. We could buy the house and, and, you know, a crack appears in the ceiling and I could you know, get out the stuff and try to fix it and paint over it. But a week later, a new crack's going to be over here. We could hire someone to fix the cracks and the concrete and the water's coming in. And, but then a year later, more water's coming in. The problem with the house is that no amount of fixing it's going to fix anything. New cracks will always emerge because the foundation's off. And the reality is the house needed to be torn down, the foundation that was there removed, and a new foundation laid with the house being built properly on top of a strong foundation. Now, I want to apply that to our life and just say, what foundation is your life built upon? Every person in this room has a foundation. Everybody does. You, you can't avoid having a foundation. There is a foundation. Many of you maybe don't realize that you've laid a foundation in your life. There's some kind of road that your life is built on that you're navigating all the hardships in life with. Everyone's got a foundation. And the Bible says there is only one true foundation, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sin, and the entering into a relationship with God through what Christ has done for you. And if you do not have that foundation in your life, then what you're going to find is that cracks begin to emerge in your life. That no amount of trying to fix it, no amount of trying to put up band-aids over it, no amount of trying to kind of paint over the, the cracks that are appearing can solve. Until you deal with the foundation of your life, your life will never find the way it was supposed to be. 
new cracks will always emerge. We're continuing this sermon series through what is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew preaches the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. Luke's version is a bit more abbreviated, but he's got some of the main elements of the Sermon on the Mount. And we get to this section right here where he's going to be talking about sincere faith versus hypocritical faith and asking the question, do you have a legitimate faith in Jesus laid on the proper foundation Or is your faith hypocritical? You're going by the title Christian, but in reality, you're a house who's kind of fallen apart. And you need to check your foundation to make sure that it's laid correctly. What I want to do today is I want to allow these very powerful words from Jesus to kind of serve as a means to put us on trial before the Lord. I want the text to kind of scrape our soul and for us to ask, is this true of us? Do I have a right foundation or have I been deceived? Is my life producing real fruit or have I been deceived? Because that's what Jesus is trying to do today. So let me read the first part of this verse to us. It reads this way, Luke chapter 6, verse 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Let's pause right there. Jesus is laying out in this entire section, we'll read a few more verses in just a moment, two different tests for us to discern if we have sincere faith or hypocritical faith. And the first one is that we evaluate the fruit that's coming out of our life. The metaphor isn't that hard to pick up on. It's pretty straightforward. Jesus says, look, consider a tree. If you've got a good tree, then that good tree is going to produce good, luscious, delicious, juicy fruit. It's going to be good to the taste. And if you find yourself eating a piece of fruit that is sour or it's withered or it's just not juicy in any way, it's just kind of dead fruit, you know the issue's not with the fruit. That's not where the issue started. You've got to trace it all the way back to the, the tree. The source of the tree and the roots of that tree were off, and that's the reason the fruit's off. So if you've got sour fruit, it's not the fruit's problem. It's the tree. And Jesus then applies that to us. He says, look at your life as a tree. You evaluate the fruit that you're producing. Look at it, evaluate it. If it's healthy, you can know your roots are strong. You've laid your foundation properly. If it's not healthy, then you're a bad tree. And the tree needs to be fixed in order to produce good fruit. The fruit that you produce is a picture for you of how healthy your tree is. Now, I love this language he uses. Look, he says, each tree is known by its fruit. And then he says, verse 45, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. Now, that word treasure, it can also be translated treasury. Very similar words, but slightly different. Treasure is the actual goal. It's that value of your life. The treasury, which I think is the better translation in this verse, it's that place where you store in your soul the most important thing about you. The greatest thing in your life is stored in the deep inner recesses of your soul. And Jesus says, whatever you store there will drive you. Whatever is the most important, intimate, precious thing about you, that will flow out of that treasury into all areas of your life. And the question Jesus is asking is, what is stored there? 
Because if you're storing the wrong thing in that compartment of your soul, the thing that is the most important place, your treasury, if you've got the wrong treasure in there, then you'll never produce good fruit. You'll always be off. But if you've stored the right thing, now what is the right thing? The right treasure to store in that treasury is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' death on the cross, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God loves you, has a plan for your life, and he sent Christ to the cross in order to be in a covenant relationship with you that can never be taken from you. And that sweetness of friendship with God of love with God, of covenant with God, of being led by God, being filled by his spirit, that's your treasure. That's the proper treasure to hold in the treasury of your soul. And if that's there, then your life's gonna be very healthy. It doesn't mean it'll be perfect, doesn't mean you won't make mistakes, but you're gonna on the whole live a very healthy life. You're gonna avoid much conflict and hardship in your life. But if that's not the center of your life, if that gospel is, you know, it's in the peripherals, but it hasn't taken up residence in the treasury of your soul, then Jesus says there's a deeper problem. There's something else going on. The true treasure of your life must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the question we should be asking is, okay, I get the concept, but what constitutes fruit? Jesus says, here's the first test. You can look at the fruit your life is producing and know if you're actually a Christian. Now, Jesus talked often about hypocrites, people who claimed to be followers of God, but in fact were just empty and shallow and didn't have depth. So we should be asking ourselves, if one of the tests of hypocrisy is the fruit of our life, what constitutes fruit? Now I put together quite a lengthy list and I've whittled it down to five, five separate ideas that we can evaluate as fruit in our life. Let's walk through all five of them. I think the first one, most obvious, that most Christians would think of when they think of fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. That's a common phrase in Christianity, the fruit of the Spirit. We get that from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Read this way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. No law. The fruit of the Spirit is, is more than a temperament. When you read those verses, you know, it's interesting. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit the Apostle Paul describes... I think many non-Christians, many people who only know Jesus peripherally or don't know Jesus at all, might actually say, you know, some of those up there, I would claim about me. I know many non-Christians who are very self-controlled people. I know many non-Christians who have been very kind to me over the course of my life. In fact, I know many non-Christians who would say that kindness is the number one driving factor of their life. And so it, this is more than a temperament. Jesus is describing a life that can only be true of the person that has got the proper treasure in the treasury of their soul. Think of the fruit of the Spirit this way. It's a bit like a flower with all of its petals. Many of us think, okay, I'm good at that one, I'm good at that one, I'm good at that one. Maybe those three or four fruits of the Spirit I'm not so good at. That's the wrong way to think of it. It's a bit like a flower with all of its petals. A healthy flower blooms all of these. They all grow, and, and they grow together. You don't just launch out of the gate and you, you got the whole thing. When, when the flower begins to bloom, the petals begin to arise, and over the course of a life, you see it blossoming more and more and more until it's on full display. And the Christian life, when you first begin, is a little bit like that flower that just got planted. It's just beginning. You begin to see the seedlings of these fruits of the Spirit. 
But as you mature in faith, they blossom together like the petals of a flower. Let's go through them. What are they? Love. This is a godly love that extends beyond those who are easy to love. Everyone loves the people that are easy to love. Even the demons (laughs) do that. Jesus just got done preaching in the previous sermon how to love your enemies. That's a Christian love. How to love those who are difficult and who are your enemies. Why? Because Christ loved you when you were his enemy. Peace. This is not some kind of stoic pasting of unemotionalism. Just kind of Eastern Buddhist peacefulness. That's not it. No, this is a peace that surpasses understanding. It's the peace of a person who knows that nothing they could do could ever remove the gospel from their life because God got a hold of them and their salvation is entirely dependent on God. And nothing they could ever do could rob them of that. Do you know how peaceful that life is? Peace. Isaiah chapter 2 says, In the days of the Messiah... They will beat their swords into plowshares. It's interesting language. What it's saying is that violent men, violent women, people who are prone to anger and animosity towards each other will become peaceful towards each other. Here's an interesting test for you. How do you do when you're stuck in traffic? It's a bit humorous. Not good? That's the lowest rung on this ladder. Now, we can laugh about it. I'm asking you to put yourself on trial before the scriptures today. And I'm asking what fruit is coming out of you. Because bad fruit says bad tree. Are you peaceful? Doesn't mean there's not a place for righteous anger, but it means that you understand that that God has so changed your life that you are a man and woman of peace and it's a peculiar peace unique to the Christian. Patience, a supernatural patience. Why does a Christian have patience? You know, here's why. Because when you look at someone who's sinning against you, they're functioning like a mirror in your life. And you're looking at sins running in that person and you're saying, I know that I have those same sins in me. That's the gospel The gospel is not we were good and got our act even more together. The gospel is we're more sinful than we can ever imagine. And whatever sins we find in someone else, first and foremost are in us. So when someone's sinning against you, you can look at them and say, oh, Lord, what are you teaching me about me? It's in me as well. Do you know how much patience that gives a person? Is that fruit coming out of your life? Kindness, not just a kindness that's self-seeking, but a kindness that seeks to see others thrive in a way that you don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing, in a way that doesn't need any pat on the back, any uh, accolades. It's just a kindness towards others because God has been kind to you. Goodness. That can also be translated as generosity. You know, Christians ought to be, they ought to be, the most generous people. Just this overwhelming releasing of your resources to kingdom work. Done with hoarding. Done with storing up treasure for myself where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. We got the message, Jesus. We're not holding on to it. We're letting it go. Doesn't mean it's not good to have a savings. Doesn't mean it's not good to store up for a rainy. That's not it. But it's this releasing for kingdom purposes. Generosity. Faithfulness. That's dependability. James says, let your yes be yes. Right? We don't waffle. Why? Because we're Christians. We give our word, we follow through even to our pain. Gentleness. 
As a dad of three little girls, I have to constantly remind myself, gentleness, 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 right? They're princesses. But the Christian is gentle. We have this tenderness with us. Why? Because our Heavenly Father has been so tender to us in all of our sin, even this morning and yesterday. He continues to pour out his long-suffering patience with us when we just... You know, we, we don't follow through like we ought, and we ought to be way further than we are, and, and he's just tender and gentle, and then we love to be gentle with others because God's been gentle with us. Self-control, the ability to deny oneself, to see when our emotions and our desires are out of line with what God would have us do, and to say no to that in order to say yes to God. Now, here's the question. I'm asking to put us on trial today, and I'm just through one of the fruits, the fruit of the Spirit, what does the fruit look like in your life? Jesus is asking us to evaluate our life and to say, am I a healthy tree or not? What are you seeing when you look at yourself? The second fruit that I think of is the fruit of obedience. The fruit of obedience. This is a word that uh, Americans hate, especially in a big city like this that's so just inundated with modern secular ideology. We hate obedience. We love being the self-authenticated man or woman, the self-determined man. We will, we will pave our own way and get our own job done, and we'll do it with success. But the most, if you break Christianity down, the gospel is that Jesus has saved you on the cross, he's filled you by the Holy Spirit, and equipped you to live an obedient life to God. No Christian can sin knowingly and not be grieved in the spirit about it. See, it's one thing if you're sinning, if you get called out on a sin, and your heart is grieved, and, and, and you're in a pattern of sin, and you cry out like Paul in Romans 7, oh, woe is me, who will rescue me from this body of death? Because you know the flesh inside of you, and you're growing in it, and you're learning to hate sin, but if you get called out on sin, and you kind of say this, I don't really care, I'm gonna keep doing me, that's a problem, that's a severe problem. Because obedience is a marker of healthy fruit. It's a marker of a healthy tree. The, the Christian says, like Psalm 119, verse 17 to 20, deal bountifully with your servant that I might live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Behold, I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. See, the Christian loves the law of God because they know in obeying God's law, there's life to the full. And anytime they deviate from God's law, they bring in death into their own life and death into other people's lives, and they say, God is good. And so when God says something, and I think differently, I'm wrong and God's right. That's the end of the story. He is stronger, wiser, better than me, and I have seen his goodness, and I am doing what he says. And when I see the flesh rising up in me, I grieve it, and I'm learning to put it to death. What fruit's coming out of your life? Do you grieve disobedience? Third fruit, the fruit of heart and mouth integrity. This is the part of the sermon that's most convicting for me this week. I was talking about this with my men's group during the week. Jesus mentions this in the last verse. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now, there's something about the internal dialogue and internal monologue of the heart and the actual words you speak. We all have two voices, right? So right now you're hearing me speak. You're hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth. 
What you can't hear is the other voice inside my head. The voice that oftentimes is actually put to words inside my mind that thinks all kinds of thoughts during the day. And sometimes we don't even put the, the thoughts we're having into words, but they're just feelings, they're senses. And the course of a Christian's life, your internal monologue and your external monologue that are out of sync are slowly and increasingly coming into sync with each other so that they're the same. There's an integrity between the two. The, the condition and the desires and the thoughts of your heart are matching the words that you're saying. Isn't it easy to go through life and have all kinds of hidden thoughts in your mind that you would be so embarrassed to speak out loud in a place like this? If people knew what we thought during the week, what would church be like? If people knew the anger or the judgmentalism or the lust that was going through the mind during the week, and here's my question. Is there a grieving over the internal dialogue that is off of God's, what is par for godliness? Or is there a settling? So long as I just kind of outwardly have this veneer. See, the problem is, if you're settling as a Christian for the externals of faith, just what I say, that's Phariseeism. That's what the Pharisees did. They were all external and they didn't deal with the condition of their heart. Jesus says, I'm after your heart and I want to bring those into alignment. Is there a growing alignment in your life? Or does your internal dialogue just kind of run and there's no grieving of it? We're looking at the fruit. I'm asking you to evaluate not who you desire to be as I'm preaching. I'm asking you to evaluate who you have been up until this point. Fourth fruit. The fruit of evangelism. Well, that's the menu item that not many Christians today want to deal with. Each Christian is uniquely designed to know and love God and to be ambassadors for Christ in the world around them. That everyone around them would, would, would see the goodness of Jesus. And one of the challenges with the modern American church, I've said this regularly, is that often what Christians have done is they've settled for allowing those who are in full-time vocational ministry to be the ones that tell others about Jesus. So they think of me as the pastor or people on staff of the crusade or with navigators or any other ministry or missionaries. And 99% of Christians, everybody else, most people who are living faithful Christian lives, that's not something that needs to concern them. And, and I need to say this, that if the treasure of the gospel Jesus Christ is the thing that's deepest in your treasury of your soul. And you don't want to tell anyone else about Jesus. You go years along with next to people who don't know Christ. You never bring them up. People who are on a path to hell. Because the scriptures say, unless you put your faith fully in Jesus Christ, there's an eternity apart from God because there's only forgiveness in one name and that's in Jesus Christ. And you've got that treasure and you know how good it is to live for God, not only to get out of hell and to live for heaven, but the goodness of walking with Christ in this life and how sweet that is to know that you're in right relationship with God and you're in community with other people and you really don't care about their soul's condition. I have to ask, what treasure's in here? Because if it's the treasure of the gospel, Jesus says that not only will you desire to be an effective witness, but over time you will be an effective witness because you have the Holy Spirit. And it's not up to how good you are at making Christian arguments. It's just about being a faithful Christian in people's lives. What treasure are you holding? 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he says this about his Jewish brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul was Jewish, put his faith in the Messiah Jesus. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You know what he says there? He says, I wish I could go to hell if it meant my Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved and believe in Jesus. Paul's willing to go to hell, and, and we don't care. I'm asking you, what's the fruit? What's the fruit? Lastly is the fruit of wisdom. Fifth fruit, James chapter three, verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. You know, I've, I have a lot of people come up to me you know, and, and asking for counsel on things. And I'll, I'll say, you know, have you spoken to any other Christians about what you should do and, and who's speaking into your life? And they'll share so-and-so, some other Christian that's in their life giving counsel. I'll say, what did, they, what did they share with you? They'll tell me what they shared. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, wow, that's terrible advice. <laughs> and, and I'll say, did they open the word of God with you? No. Did they reference scripture at all as they were giving you counsel? No. And I, and I say, maybe that was just a one-off. Maybe it was just a, you know, it was a moment, right? But then I begin to see these patterns of giving wisdom that simply put is just worldly wisdom. It's just man's ideas. And if we're just settling for man's ideas to get through life and to figure out how we ought to live, we don't know what the gospel is. I'm asking you this. Are you digesting this book letting it resonate with who you are so that you can not only live properly but guide others through their life as well because when you give counsel, you're going right back to God's word because you don't trust your own wisdom. You trust the wisdom of the word of God. Now look, there are degrees of all of this. There are degrees of all of this. Every one of us is a work in progress. We're gonna screw all these things up all the time. No one gets this right all the time. And if you're feeling conviction in the spirit right now, I, I want you to feel that conviction but I wanna do two things. I want to do two things. On the one hand, if you are a baby Christian, what you should be seeing is that these fruits, it's like a flower that's just beginning to, to bloom. You can see the seedlings of these fruits in your life. You can see it. It might not be perfect. It might not be blooming yet, but you can see it. And if that's you, what I want to say is, oh, God is doing such a good work in your life. I can't wait to see what he does. You keep going the direction you're going. But if I go through these fruits... And, and you're saying, it doesn't really describe me. Then I have to let Jesus' words stand. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Test yourself this morning. One of my favorite authors, Octavius Winslow, he says this, is Christ dwelling in your heart by his spirit? Is your religion more than a mere outward profession? Oh, it is an awful thing to go into eternity with your Bible and your psalm book or your prayer book in your hand, but without Christ living in your soul, with the elements of the Savior's love melting upon your lips, but without the experience of the Savior's love glowing in your heart. Don't go to hell with your Bible in your hand. Christ has called you to relationship with him. And the treasury, the treasure of your soul needs to be Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead, and that paints every part of your life. Otherwise, we're just pasting on Christianity, and that says we're a bad tree.
Now, Jesus keeps going. The first fruit to look at is, the, the first test for our soul, if we're sincere or hypocritical, is the fruit that's coming off our life. Now he gives a whole other test. This is fascinating. And he says that the test is how you weather storms in your life. You want to know whether you're laid a sincere faith or a hypocritical faith? Look at the way you navigate trials and hardship, and that will tell you, says Jesus, how your faith is and whether it's legitimate or not. Now, let's look at the text. Verses 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great." Now again, Jesus' metaphors are not overly complex. This is not rocket science. He says everyone builds a foundation. You either build on the solid rock, which is Christ crucified for you. New life in Christ. Jesus' blood shed for you. The giving of the Holy Spirit. Life in Christ. Or you have some other foundation. And what's going to happen is trial is going to come in your life. Everyone is going to have to face the flood at some point. And when the flood comes, what's going to happen is the house is going to be shaken in such a way that you're going to see, was I ever actually standing on the rock that is Christ to begin with or not? Now, the question is actually one of obedience. Look at his language here. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What's the foundation? The foundation is the gospel and then living obediently to Christ's commands. He's calling out hypocrisy. He's calling out Phariseeism. He's saying, don't just say, Lord, Lord, but then live a disobedient life. That's not the foundation. The foundation is, Lord, Lord, and then following him in all ways. The rest of this text lays out the dangers of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Your house will fall apart the moment that the storm comes. Now, I want you for just a moment to think, not how you want to behave in in trials and storms, I want you to think about the last storm you've been through, the last trial in your life, the really, the hardest thing you've been through recently. And maybe for some of you, you're in it right now, and that's not hard to think about. You you know it. You're going through it right now. Have it in the front of your mind. We're going to put ourselves to the test. We're going to put ourselves on trial before God right now, okay? Maybe it was a difficult person or a conversation at work. Maybe you were slandered, and you had to deal with all that emotion that comes with being slandered by somebody. Maybe it was sickness in your family, in your own life. Maybe it was a broken relationship with a family member. Maybe it was hardship in marriage. Maybe you're struggling to pay the bills. Here's the the question Jesus is asking. What came out of you when you went through that trial? What was revealed about your foundation as you went through the trial? William Gurnall, this incredible author from a previous generation, he lays out two tests that we can give ourselves for evaluating how we go through trials. Two different tests. Now, he's old school. He used big, fancy words that are hard for us to understand, so I'm going to simplify them for us today, okay? And the two tests are this. The first one is the test of desire. When you go through a trial, what is being revealed about your desire? Is your desire to obey God through your trial? Now, why is that important? Well, because when you go through hardship in life, whatever it is, if it's anything I just listed, the normal thing, the normal attitude of a non-Christian when they face trial is to just say, I can get through this. 
I have what it takes here. I have what it takes here. I have what it takes with grit and determination. And I am going to find a way to get through this. And oftentimes people in trial become very reckless people, don't they? They end up burning a couple bridges, saying things they regret. They end up hurting people along the way. Why? Because they're drowning and they know the only way they're going to get out of drowning is if they fight their way through the crowds to get through it. And oftentimes they're standing on the other side. Now, the worldly person has all kinds of scars, and they're very good at covering up their scars from working their way through when they've been drowning. They can cover it up and feel like they don't have them, but they leave a wake behind them of people who have been hurt as they've tried to navigate storms. The Christian is a whole different person, aren't they? The Christian, when they navigate a storm, they say, Lord, I have a contentedness in you. I have a contentedness in you. I know that nothing is out of your control which means that storms that come up in my life have a purpose and they can shape me and I want to be obedient to you. And, and they can look at things that are going on in their own heart and see feelings, emotions, actions they might take and they can submit them to God and say, I don't just want to be obedient today, but this storm might last for years and I want to be obedient tomorrow and in a month and in a year. It's a bit like a man who sets himself out to go on a journey across the city, and right as he walks out his door, he looks, and, and it, it starts downpouring rain. And he says, no, I know where I got to be. So he goes, and he grabs an umbrella, and then he marches, and he just fights his way through the storm because he knows where he has to go. He's determined. He's going forward. He's not going to let the storm pitch him off where he said he was going in the first place. Storms can make us go in the opposite direction of where Christ would have us go. Now, here's the thing. Storms have a way of revealing our foundation, don't they? Now, I want to ask you, how did you do the last time you went through a storm? Was it revealed that you wanted to obey God? Was it revealed that you had a desire to not stray from his path for your life, to not take matters into your own hand, to not retaliate against people who meant you harm, but to love your enemies? Were you seeking that? It's hard, isn't it? See, I know me. And I have, a, uh, I have a first move in my life when I have storms, which is to fix things. I think I've been that way since I was a little boy. And, and, and I can fix a lot of things. I got a lot of energy. I've got a lot of resources and people who can help, and I can just get things done. And the Christian says, no, I want to depend on God. I want to be obedient. What would you have me do through this? I want to ask you, is obedience to Christ's commands in all, in all areas of your life something that deeply concerns you as you're going through a trial? And does the discovery of some wayward action or misplaced emotion as you go through a trial something that you then bring to God? Now that leads me to the second test. And this is what's called the, the test of honesty and openness with God through trial. This is interesting. When you go through a trial as a Christian... What should be happening is that you are increasingly experiencing the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, the gospel is that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. Even your greatest deeds are like filthy rags before the Lord. There's nothing good in and of yourself. All you bring to the Lord is sinfulness. And even your best actions are so tainted by sin that, that God sees them as unworthy of inheriting eternal life. But he then sent Christ to die for you on the cross. He gave you grace when you didn't deserve it. Now, when you go through a trial, oftentimes the trial and the hardship that's in your life is a result of foolish decisions you made. Not always. Sometimes you're purely the victim of something, and that's a whole different story. But oftentimes there's some degree that you are involved in the hardship that's coming into your life. 
And if you're a Christian, that can do one of two things. A Christian should be the kind of person that then sees their mistakes and openly rejoices in bringing them to God because they know the tenderness and the goodness of God. They know that he forgave them the first time and he'll continue to forgive them. See, trials reveal that about us, don't they? What do you do when you go through a hardship? Are you increasingly vulnerable with God through your trial? It's a bit like someone who rents a house. Think of someone who rents an Airbnb house. Imagine you get in your Airbnb and there's a glass vase on the mantle and you're playing with your kids in the house and you know a ball gets thrown and the vase falls and it breaks. Now, what are you gonna do? There's two ways to respond. One is probably what most people do who rent Airbnbs. They hide the evidence and hope that the owner of the house isn't around enough to see that the, that the vase got broken. The other person calls the owner of the house says, you're not going to believe this. I was throwing a ball in the house. I'm so sorry. What can I do to resolve this? I, I broke the vase. And they got to deal with the consequences of it. Now, to extend the metaphor, to be really clear with you guys, we're all going to break vases in the Lord's house. <laughs> Non-believer and believer alike are going to make mistakes. The question the storm reveals is, are you increasingly learning that the master of the house is gracious and generous and tender and long-suffering with you and loves that when you break the vase, you know he's like a good, tender father and he is there to forgive you because you've learned the truth of the gospel already and you eagerly bring that truth with you into every trial you go through and every time you bring more mistakes, you get more and more of the flood of God's grace in your life and trials become an opportunity to grow in your knowledge in your love of the grace of the gospel. Trials aren't some just random hardship in your life, but God places in your life to deepen your resolve because you experience the gospel. Or are you the person who hides it? You make a mistake, you just try to cover it up, no need to bring it to God, no need to confess it to anybody else, just hope no one notices. Two ways to go through trials. I'm asking you not what you want to do right now as I'm preaching. How did you navigate the last trial you went through? What came out? Did the trial serve to deepen your resolve in Christ? To deepen your understanding of the grace of the gospel? Or did it serve to further your own, your own agenda and kind of make you walk away from Christ a little bit? Now, let me close with a word of encouragement. I think in this room there are, there's three people, and here's how I want to close. There's three different people in here. Some of you are feeling incredibly encouraged right now because you're looking and you're saying, you know what, I see this and I didn't do this perfectly. No one should be saying I did this perfectly. You're Christians. We're, we're all flawed. We're gonna make mistakes. The first category though says, I see this and, and you should be having this assurance of faith bubbling up in you. It's true. I, there's fruit in my life and there's foundation and I weathered a storm and I dug closer to Christ and Christ right now is forming in you. Yes, son, daughter. I love you. You're a follower of Christ, and it's as sweet as it's ever been. It's called assurance of faith. And you, Christian, dig deep into that assurance. It's rich and beautiful. Some of you in this room might be in a bit of a different place. Maybe you are an immature Christian or a new believer, and you're going through this, and you're saying, you know, I probably have failed more than I've succeeded at most of this. But Jesus put me on trial today, and here's what I see. I see the seedlings of the desires to be that person. I want to do that, 
And I can see, on my best days, I can see it coming out. I desire to obey. I desire to have heart and mouth integrity. I know when I'm off that grieves God, and I want to bring it into alignment. And here's what I want to tell you. That desire, despite not being able to do it, but the desire, the inkling of the desire, is proof of the gospel in your soul. You might be a baby Christian, and if that's the case, I want to, I want to bring you on a journey of maturing in Christ because there's far greater planes to run through. And I want you to get there. I want to bring you on that journey. But know this, be confident in your faith in Christ. If that treasury is producing that desire in you, that means the seed of the gospel is already in your soul. Amen. Hallelujah. That's a work surely of grace in your life. Some of you might be doing a bit of an evaluation this morning and saying, if I'm honest, the desire and the fruit is not there. It never has been. And I've been settling for hypocritical Christianity. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Going to a small group doesn't make you a Christian. Giving financially to good causes doesn't make you a Christian. You've got to have the gospel of Jesus, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins in your treasury flowing into all areas of your life. And if you've been on trial for the last 45 minutes and you're telling yourself, I'm guilty, I don't want you to leave here in that condition. You are being invited by a holy God to repent of sin and to change your foundation because that foundation will break when the river bursts upon it, whatever you're on right now. But there is a foundation that is available to you that if you trust in Jesus Christ, it will never fail you no matter what storm comes, even the storm of death, which we will all face one day, that foundation will last throughout all eternity. And it's a free gift no one can ever take it from you. It's as free today as it was yesterday, and it's yours in Christ if you will receive it. You've got to abandon your old foundation. It will only lead to death and cling to Christ. He's the author of life. Amen? Amen. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we love you. And uh, as we reflect on these words from Christ today, out of Luke chapter 6, God, we are convicted, I'm convicted, over areas where there's a lack of fruit in my life a lack of revealing that I'm weathering storms properly. And God, I pray for deeper faith, deeper resolve in Christ. And I pray for those in this room, Lord, who right now are praying prayers of salvation, saying, I want Christ. I want the right foundation. I pray that you would do that work in this room, that there would be new life, new faith in Jesus, even right now. And for those who are clinging on to Christ in the midst of storm, I pray, God, that you would bless them, that you would strengthen them for what they're going through. Father, we love you. We want to magnify the name of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.